Welcome back to the Lived Experience Project, the podcast that explores unique narratives rarely heard in mainstream media. Last episode, we met Angela, who introduced us to our shared human experiences of ambivalence and a need for connection. As we continue to consider the lived experiences of undocumented immigrants, in this episode, we hear Anthony's voice. In his own words, he offers a fascinating and raw narrative that goes against expectations. The beginning of Anthony's story is, however, as he tells us, like stories we have heard before. My parents took us because it's like any other immigrant family. They have a dream of, you know, succeeding and doing bigger things in their life. I was three and a half years old. I don't remember much of it at all, but uh, it's definitely a bold decision to pick up their family and, and go to the U.S. From an early age, Anthony knew his family had been living in the country unlawfully. They had traveled from the Middle East for a brighter future. After overstaying their visitors' visas, his parents tried applying for asylum, sponsorship through a family member, and the last option of employer sponsorship. Each attempt was unsuccessful, many times because of attorney's mistakes. Despite his parents' inability to find a path to citizenship, Anthony said that the family lived a relatively stable life. His parents worked and provided well. While they didn't tell anyone about their status, early on, Anthony's father was deported and he and his family lived in a fear that this could happen again at any moment. Here's Anthony. I remember one time when we were younger, my dad had got deported and I didn't understand where he went for the few days until I got older. And then I realized that they had picked him up and sent him back overseas. This is something that we grew up ever since we were little. Me and my siblings is a fear of that any given time, if my dad does get sent back, do we have to go back? Coming as young as I did to the U.S., I never realized um, you know, how hard it could be in another country. It was something nothing that ever you know, it was a fear because I didn't know what was, was in the country that I came from. It was, a, it was a fear of not knowing. And every time you don't know something, I guess the fears are a little stronger than when you do know something because there's no preparation for it. So um, this is something that we had to live with growing up. The fear of not knowing is a real phenomenon among undocumented immigrant children. In fact, one study found the consequences on mental and emotional health for those who arrive as children and spend most of their formative years in the U.S. to be quite different from those who migrate as adults. The study highlighted severe long-term implications like confusion and conflicting experiences of inclusion and exclusion, trauma, feelings of shame and stigmatization, extreme concealment and fear of deportation, as well as identity incoherence, among others. This identity incoherence piece is crucial, particularly among undocumented children who grow up in the United States with little to no assurance of a safe and secure future. Even though Anthony's father returned to the United States over 20 years ago, both his parents remain undocumented today. Living in a constant state of insecurity means that undocumented individuals struggle with how unpredictably their lives are fractured and refractured. During his formative years, informed by constant interaction with people, language, and new cultural learning, Anthony found a sense of security in his relationship with his older brother and sister. He told me he was extremely close to both of them growing up. To alleviate his boredom after they both left home for college, he said, he turned to something different to fill the void. 
As we spoke, though, it became more and more clear to me that he was seeking something bigger than alleviating boredom. He was seeking connection and community, and even seemed like he was trying to find himself. When he felt isolated, he turned to his friends on the streets, who he said made him feel, quote, alive. I found other people who took the place of my siblings in the wrong way, he told me. I asked him what he meant by the wrong way. Here's how he describes it. I started doing a lot of music and I started doing the hip-hop scene. By, by grade 10, I was recording and I was uh, started. My brother, uh, that's another thing that was huge. The summer between my freshman year of high school and my sophomore year, my brother ended up leaving. So I feel like I'm, I'm this, this kid that used to share a room with his siblings and now I'm, I'm by myself. Now, now I'm feeling like I'm very alone and... Uh, so I started doing hip-hops, and I was really good at it. That's, that's another thing. So I was getting a lot of attention from hip-hop. So I feel like I became a product of hip-hop, a product of my environment and the people I used to hang out with, whether it be drinking, whether it be smoking, whether it be fighting, anything that had to do with hip-hop. I was trying to reach some type of platform where people see me and respect me in the hip-hop community, and this was me seeking attention. So I wanted to take it a step further. I wanted people to notice me in the hip-hop scene. You know, I wanted that street credit. People strive so hard for it, not realizing that, you know, at this time I'm putting my education in the background. I'm putting everything else on the back burner, and I'm not really paying attention to what's going on around me. To put things into context, by not paying attention to things around me, Anthony is referring to his family and ultimately their immigration status. His lifestyle at the time was the opposite of what his parents wanted for him. They wanted him to get educated, a luxury they didn't have easy access to in the Middle East. Instead, he took a rather lengthy detour from the shaping power of his parents' aspirations and expectations for him. With one foot in one culture and the other foot in a different culture, Anthony's balancing act was complicated even further by his sense of loneliness and desperate need to connect and find his identity. An undocumented status muddles this formative process even more. Pulled into multiple directions, at one point, Anthony was a lonely, undocumented, Middle Eastern American adolescent rapper trying to translate contrasting cultural and familial expectations into reality. Knowing that, I couldn't help but want to congratulate him for surviving his adolescent years. How could I not? His attempts to find himself were bold. Recognizing the challenges he faced helps, in some small way at least, contextualize the events that led Anthony to where he ended up. About a year after he graduated from high school, Anthony went to visit a friend who lived out of state. After a short visit to a casino, they got into an altercation with a stranger. The victim identified Anthony's friend, but Anthony was arrested when he returned to his home state. Although both he and his friend were charged with the same crime, his friend was released earlier, despite the victim's testimony that Anthony wasn't involved. I asked him why he thought that was the case, and he simply said that he believed he was racially profiled. Anthony was sentenced to several years in prison, although he only served a little over two years because of good behavior. When he finished his sentence, he was immediately taken into custody and detained by immigration officials. While he had a lot to say about his incarcerated experience, I was interested in hearing about how his undocumented status affected his release. When did your undocumented status come into play? I asked him. Here's what he told me. The deportation, the immigration came in the first month. 
that I was in a, it was a classification center. And they came the first month and they, they wanted to interview me and I talked to them and they ended up taking all my identification. So at this point, when they took all my identification out of my, my, my lockers, I knew that they, you know, they were going to move through and deport me so I wouldn't have any identification from the U.S. anymore. The first four months were very hard. They were very stressful. I barely slept. I would read books to try to sleep, but I ended up finishing a book every night. I just kept reading and reading and reading. You know, when you read, you're, you're concentrating on a book. It kind of takes you out of the, the, the realm of being in prison. But there was always a chance that, you know, maybe they won't deport me or maybe something will happen where laws will change or, you know, I'm going to be here for a while. So I didn't, you know, I put it on the back and I didn't really think about it too much. And uh, immigration picked me up at two years and four months. Anthony isn't the only person hoping for change or praying for an alternative to deportation. After all, he'd come as a three-year-old, made a mistake, and served his time. How could he be sent back to a country, culture, and language he didn't know? While there continues to be ongoing dialogue about the need for comprehensive immigration reform, deportation and family separation has continued to rise. The Department of Homeland Security data shows that in 2015, over 400,000 persons were apprehended nationwide, and a total of over 462,000 deportations and returns were conducted, continuing a streak of stepped-up enforcement that's resulted in more than 2 million deportations since Obama took office. About half of those deported have a prior criminal conviction, from aggravated felonies to minor drug offenses. The other half are detained and deported on immigration charges alone. These deportations are referred to as removal proceedings and typically include a due process. For example, if someone is caught by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, commonly known as ICE, through various means, like a raid, as could have been the case with Mateo, or through a criminal arrest, that individual is placed into a detention facility, typically located in a remote and isolated area, often long distances from family. Like a typical prison, many of these centers are often surrounded by razor wire where detainees are required to wear jumpsuits and communicate with visitors through glass windows. Since 2007, the Department of Homeland Security budget language has stated that funding for immigration and customs enforcement shall, quote, maintain a level of not less than 34,000 detention beds in these centers. In other words, this bed mandate, as it's commonly referred to on Capitol Hill, requires ICE to maintain and fill an average of 34,000 beds a day in over 200 centers nationwide. The number itself is completely arbitrary and is the only legislative mandate that requires law enforcement to detain a certain number of people a day. The reason for detaining that many people to uphold the law is too simplistic because many other variables play a role in these determinations. For example, according to the Center for Immigration Progress, 62% of all immigration detention beds are operated by for-profit prison corporations. The two largest for-profit prison companies with which the United States contracts to detain immigrants, CCA and GEO Group Incorporated, have doubled their revenue since 2005. This was not by coincidence. Between 2004 and 2014, CCA spent $18 million, and GeoGroup spent nearly $4 million on lobbying. CCA spent more than $8.7 million, and the GeoGroup spent $1.3 million to lobby Congress solely on homeland security appropriations between 2006 and 2015. 
Unfortunately, these types of mandates in large numbers reflect an ideology that dismisses the undocumented experience and their severe policy implications for the group. While the due process affords detainees an opportunity for case dismissal, it too minimizes the impact on the lived experience. While the average length of stay in one of these centers is about 30 days for detainees, the due process they're afforded takes even longer, adding another layer of stress and anxiety. For example, once a detainee is assigned a master calendar hearing, he or she appears before the court to request a bond for redetermination. This means that the person is allowed to ask to be released on bond so they're free while they're undergoing the hearing process. Once the individual finally appears for the master calendar hearing, changes of removability or deportation charges are brought against them. A judge determines whether or not the person is removable based on whether or not they meet the requirements to stay in the U.S. or be granted relief. Unfortunately, the options for relief are limited. Remember Mateo? While many detainees will go through a similar process, most don't have the same options for relief, such as a marriage to a U.S. citizen, let alone the option for asylum or an employer-sponsored work permit. As a result, this due process becomes merely a legal formality that ends with thousands of deportations a year. When Anthony told me he didn't go through this due process, I didn't understand why. A bit of research led me to what's known as the Stipulated Removal Program that's deported more than 160,000 non-citizens without hearings before immigration judges since 2004. Anthony is one of them. According to the Stanford Law School report based on previously unreleased government data, the federal government has used stipulated removal primarily on non-citizens in immigration detention centers who lack lawyers and are facing deportation due to minor immigration violations. These undocumented immigrants were given a Hobson's choice, accept a stipulated removal order and agree to your deportation or stay in immigration detention to fight your case. According to the research team, government records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act litigation suggests that the government officials offering stipulated removals to immigrant detainees routinely provided them with inaccurate, misleading, and confusing information about the law and removal process. Whether it's through due process or stipulated removal, generally, no matter the degree of criminal or immigration-related crime or how long a person has resided in the U.S., the ruling is the same. I got a life sentence, Anthony told me, referring to the fact that he hadn't seen his parents for almost eight years. As we spoke, he told me about his experience of leaving prison. He shared with me that he was locked up in the local jail cell for 90 days and didn't see the light of day that entire time. He was completely isolated, lost weight, and felt weak. Finally, months later, he was handcuffed and escorted by two police officers to the airport and onto the plane, where he demanded to be unshackled. It was like I was an animal, he said. But once we were in the air, I was no longer on U.S. soil. I wanted to be uncuffed, he told me. Unable to return to the U.S., he shared his story with me via Skype. Here's Anthony on adjusting to life in his birth country. Now I'm back in my country of origin. I'm starting to adapt, but the one thing that I do love about being here is even though I don't feel like I'm from here, I'm accepted here. I have freedom in a country that doesn't have a lot of freedom for people like me. You know, as bad as people complain about here and uh, the circumstances that we have to live with in the different 
things that we deal with every day, I still feel more free than I've ever felt. I was in the land of the free and felt more locked up. I couldn't travel out with my friends. I couldn't go to Cancun for my senior high school trip with the rest of the class. I couldn't, I couldn't do things that other kids did because I was, a, you know, I was a prisoner in a society that I was living. I was a prisoner. And so, you know, it's, it's, I've lived like that for 20 years. You know, we can't take vacations. We go to the same lake every year. We have the same barbecues, the same meat, you know? We go to the same beach that you can't swim in. It's just, it's, it is uh, very limited. It's a very limited lifestyle. I have to admit that I cringed when Anthony said that he feels freer where he is now than when he lived in the States. I imagine that his comments might perpetuate the notion that immigrants are criminals and that they should go back to their countries if they don't like it here, especially since he's Middle Eastern. Even with the strict limitations and pressures undocumented immigrants faced, arguments like that are still too simplistic. They don't account for the whole experience, and I'm not sure any theory or study or podcast series ever can. For so many people, the complexities of their status aren't as black and white as staying or going. Many believe that the sacrifices are worth it, compared to where they come from, just like we heard from Matteo and Angela. But that still isn't a reason to exploit their opinions on the matter. Hence the tension undocumented immigrants face. Freedom from fear of deportation, or freedom from oppression, poverty, or a lack of resources. All of this comes with grave consequences, many of which reflect the limitedness of the notion of freedom altogether, not just for the undocumented. As we spoke, it became clear that he was angry at the way his circumstances played out, not for himself, but for his still undocumented parents. Anthony began by defending their worthiness to stay in the U.S. by highlighting how much money they'd paid in taxes over the course of over 25 years. But Anthony is not the only one in favor of using that argument. Proponents of immigration reform also use tax figures to justify the need to legalize 11 million undocumented immigrants. What many people don't know is that this group contributes significantly in state and local taxes, almost $12 billion in 2012, according to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy's April 2015 report. As he spoke further about his parents' good character, Anthony's anger turned into sadness. Here he is in his own words. You also, you also have to think about, okay, uh, they're not criminals. Uh, they've never committed any crime or felony in 27 years. Okay, I made a bad decision. I got deported. I can live with that. I can live with that. Okay? But here's, here's parents that, you know, they raise, they raise good children. The events that happen in our life, okay, they ha- these events happen to everybody. America's known for locking people up. They're known for their prison systems. They're not known for helping people. They don't want to help people. Obama said it not too long ago. If you, if you, I don't remember the, the, the percentage that he, that he said, but I think if we cut down on the inmates, he said that you could pay college tuition for every child in the United States. It's ridiculous that the amount of tuition that people are paying for. There's more college debts than there is credit card debts. And of course, uh, you know, I do hold a grudge. Uh, there's, there's different, there's different situations. You know, you can't, you can't treat somebody who's lived there and grown up and, and knows nothing else. You know, you're supposed to improve people. You're supposed to help people. That's what the United States is supposed to be based on. 
You know, it's supposed to be a, a power country. You know, I got a, a, a life sentence. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen my parents in almost eight years now. You know, I'm missing Christmases with the family. There's, there's a lot of things that, uh, that people don't realize that I think about all the time. And it's very difficult. So, it is. As his words trailed off, I wasn't surprised to hear Anthony's sadness beneath his anger. I wasn't surprised either at the fact that he still held a grudge. Living as an undocumented child and adolescent in the U.S. without proper paperwork, much like we heard in Angela's story, meant that he was limited in a lot of ways. In many states, this includes an inability to obtain a driver's license, which means little or no travel, especially not foreign, getting financial aid for college, and of course, an inability to vote, which is a privilege that many Americans take for granted. Despite all this, what was most compelling to me was Anthony's resilience. Although I hoped that his story would reveal the complexity of deportation, of family separation, and criminalization, what I got was much more. Anthony spoke less about the events of his life and more about the need for human connection. He spoke well about the spectrum of consequences of unmet needs, particularly for undocumented immigrants, and even more particularly for those with convictions. While he cannot be the stand-in archetype for all undocumented immigrants, as no one person can be, his story is nonetheless valuable in pronouncing a universal truth. Beneath the music, the conviction, and the deportation is another voice. It's the one voice, in fact, that catalyzes and motivates people in the most desperate of times. It is also a remarkably powerful tool that humans cling to when there is despair or even just mere discontent. It's also the same voice that inspired Anthony's parents to move to America, and that is the voice of hope. Perhaps the sadness beneath the anger is a reflection of Anthony's hope-filled attempts to find his identity in a place where he was rejected, at least legally. When he was met with reality, that voice of hope seemed to grow faint and left him disenfranchised. This also made me think of the irony in hope. Cling to the possibility for a brighter, distant future, but beware of the reality that will likely leave you disappointed and perhaps even more despairing. Yet even in the irony, Anthony carried hope on behalf of his parents as well as his own. Unfortunately, it was crippled at his deportation when the family's worst fears became a reality. I sense there might have been a grieving process of that personal hope narrative. I'm not sure if his parents regret their move to the U.S. when they look back at the outcome, but it seems rather clear that Anthony clings to a different hope narrative now, one that seems more evolved less naive, and more cautiously optimistic. As I reflect on Anthony's narrative, as well as Mateo's and Angela's, I'm struck by the fact that despite the adversity they've all confronted, what persists is this hope for acceptance, connection, and ultimately, love. Love. 